I heard about a Tennessee farmer that was on a plane next to a Texan, and he said to the Texan, I have an 80-acre farm. And the Texan said, well, I have a farm, and it takes all day to drive across my farm in my truck. And the Tennessee farmer responded, well, I used to have a truck like that. It's time to get rid of it. Those Texans, and my mother-in-law was a Texan, and everything's bigger and better in Texas. My dad was there in the military, didn't like Texas. He said it was too dry and hot. And of course, the Texan would say, well, that, that's the part of Texas he was living in. Texas is great, except that one place, you know. And uh, I, loved, uh, I loved to hear Texans talk about their state. But we're looking today at Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to be in Micah, the little minor prophet. Not minor because they're not important, but minor because they're small in size. We're going to go to Isaiah and read a few verses from Isaiah before we look at Micah. You know, the idea of evil. Um, Micah deals with evil by pointing out that God's sovereign in spite of evil. God's sovereign in spite of evil. And he points out uh, that history is not accidental. There's no accidents in history. History's uh, governed by God. Evil's going to be dealt with. Micah deals with that as well. And points out that redemption is always possible in spite of evil. But we live in an evil world. And there's several views on evil. I'll, I'll give you these five and then we'll read our text. First, Jerry Kaczynski said he was a thinker back in his day, not much of a thinker to say this. He said God doesn't exist. He was later gassed in the Holocaust. Rabbi Kushner, believe it or not, a rabbi saying this, said God can't do anything to stop evil. Then there's the karma teaching that everything's going to come out. Those people will get what they deserve. But folks, that's not quite accurate. Why? While we know the Bible says people ultimately reap, reap what they sow, sinners in hell and believers chastened in this life, there are a lot of people in this life that don't receive karma. 61% of murderers, murders are unsolved. Used to be 90% till the discovery of DNA. So a lot of people don't get karma. So that's not quite accurate either. Although biblically they'll one day reap then there's not really a problem of evil in this world. It's all in your mind. You know, all those sexual perversions, it's not really evil. Well, my Bible says it is. But the world, some don't believe it's wrong. And then the final one is the teaching that life is unfair. While we agree that that is true, we also agree there's an eternal purpose for children of God. Life is unfair when you think about maybe a, a person who's born without the ability to live a normal life. Or someone who has a stroke. Or someone who loses a child very young. And we think that is not fair. And in our minds, that is not fair. But we know that in eternity, the least in this life will be the greatest in God's kingdom. So if you feel it's been unfair to you, keep your eyes on the Lord because one day, those unfair things in your life will become reality in the presence of Jesus. You'll be healed and you'll be normal and forever. You'll praise the Lord and you'll be great in his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2. And I'm not even there, but stand when you have it. Stand when you have it. Isaiah chapter 2. And we'll read verses 2 through 4. 
Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And I thought I was there, but I'm still not there. Isaiah 2, 2, 4. All right, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. And it came to pass in the days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Just a word. I know I teach, preach too much. Mountains always speak of great world powers, hills of lesser world powers. Notice it says that the mountains will be exalted above the hills. So there'll be one, one nation that'll be supreme. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. And we'll walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What's this talking about? Millennial kingdom. Verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and, they sh- and shall rejoice many people, and they shall beat their swords and plowshares into spears and pruning hooks, and spears and princes, they'll, they'll beat them. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. There won't be any need for weapons because God will be reigning through His Son Jesus on this earth. God bless us. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the music, which was so good in praising you. Help us to praise you. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, to fellowship together. And I just pray that what I have to say will be your word and your perfect will, that my lips will be uh, just helped along by you. We ask you to bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, a couple of things to point out to you. I have brought along a copy of the Hebrew Bible. It also has the English And the three verses we just read, uh, you don't need that for these three verses. The three verses we read, we'll go to Micah chapter, Micah chapter four now. Turn to Micah chapter four. And the three verses we just read are identical to the first three verses of Micah chapter four, word for word. Scholars tell us that Isaiah actually quotes Micah. So we're going to Micah now, the, the one who was inspired to write this. Isaiah was also inspired, but God inspired him to quote, uh, 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 inspired him to, to write these words, and he inspired Isaiah to write the quote that Micah had written, all right? And of course, you know in the Gospels, these writers quote one another. It's a common thing in Scripture for one book to quote another. But I brought along my Hebrew text because you know in your chapter 14, or chapter 4, there are 13 verses. You can look and see right now. Chapter 4 is 13 verses. But in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 of chapter 5 in the Hebrew Bible, excuse me, in our English Bible, was the last verse of chapter 4. So in the Hebrew, you have 14 verses in the English, 13. Now, that's not a mistake. Chapter divisions were added by man, and when the English translators decided to translate, they thought verse 1 would fit better in the previous chapter. And that's fine, too, because chapter divisions were not part of the original. The Bible was written in scroll form, one big, long scroll. And so we put chapter divisions in there to help people. And I say we, I wasn't around then, but uh, I'm not as old as some of you who may have been there when they translated, but um, no, I'm joking. Uh, but we, we know that the, the, that the, the uh, chapter divisions and verses were added later to help us. But you can see in the Hebrew afterwards that this chapter has one more verse in the Hebrew Bible, which I brought along. Just things you might want to know. You don't necessarily have to remember that, but you do want to remember we're looking at God's Word. 
And Micah's written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the birthplace is named Bethlehem 700 years before Jesus even came. Micah was able to write and say this is where he'd be born. And remember, when Herod wanted to know, he asked the chief priests and the scribes, where is this Jesus or this Messiah supposed to come? And of course, they knew it was in Matthew chapter 2, they knew it was Bethlehem because they knew the Old Testament. And so we find here this great prophetic statement by Micah in chapter 5, verse 2, but thou Bethlehem. But we're not going to look at that verse today. Micah is looking in chapter 4 backwards. He's, he's, he's looking at the, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign is the first thing he's talking about. Then he talks about the tribulation period, and then he goes way back and talks about Jesus being crucified, all prophetically. He doesn't talk about the church, and the Old Testament prophets never do talk about the church. They don't see the church in prophecy. We know it's not seen by them. We see it clearly, but they just do not see. They look at Jewish prophecy that applies to the nation of Israel, and they somehow miss the church and even miss the rapture. They don't understand the concept. We understand it. We accept it. We accept the New Testament, and that helps us a lot. And so here Micah's looking back, and he's going to mention several things about the millennium, the tribulation, and the Lord Jesus. Now, Micah was one of the common people, just kind of an ordinary guy. His name meant who is like Jehovah. And he lived during some really good years because in, in the nation of Judah, now remember, Judah is a southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes split off from the other ten. The ten tribes, Gad and Asher and Reuben and all those tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, the two half-tribes of Joseph, all were the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had 19 kings. All of them were evil. But now Micah's prophesying to the southern kingdom, the two, Judah and Benjamin. Who's the line of the tribe of Judah? So that's an important tribe. Benjamin was the baby boy. And they, those were the two tribes. And remember, the northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom, the capital was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so here's Micah prophesying about what's going to happen on Mount Zion, another way to say Jerusalem. But he lived during the good years of Jotham. And he lived during the bad years of Ahaz, but then ended up living in the good years of Hezekiah. And so Jotham and Hezekiah were two of the good eight kings in the nation. And so first of all, he talks about the millennial temple in verses 1 and 2. I love reading this to think about what it's going to be like. And we read verse 1 already, but it says in the last days, at the end of time, in the last days, he says, uh, God is going to appear. And God is going to come again. We call this the second advent. The first advent was when Jesus came, lived 33 and a half years, was crucified for our sins. This is a second advent when he comes again and sets up his kingdom. And we know that he's talking about the Lord's coming. I like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. doesn't say, but that's just my opinion. Not that that matters much. My opinions aren't important. God's word is. But he said, in these last days, God's spoken to us by his son. In the past, Hebrews says, he spoke to us by prophets like Micah. Then Jesus came. 
The last of the prophets was John the Baptist. Jesus came and fulfilled all the law and all the prophecy. We don't need to uh, be under the ordinances of the law anymore. We preach it and we, we learn from it. It's a great example. But we know that Jesus will one day come and teach in the temple. And we know what a great teacher he'll be. But we thank God because he is the living word. In the beginning was the word. You know the word logos is the word, that we, the Greek word translated word in John 1. There's the logos Bible program. And that's a Greek word, and we know the Logos, the Word became flesh. So Jesus came in the flesh, the Word of God in the flesh. So if you want to see Jesus, you're not going to see Him physically now, but you'll see Him right in here. That's where He is. Find Him. He's in the Word, the inspired and errant Word of God. And so we find here in verse 1, the last days, the Millennial Temple is on this mountain, and this mountain will be above all mountains. And he will go in there and teach. And look at verse 1. The Lord shall establish, it says in the middle of the verse, and the last three lines says, or last four words say, and people shall flow into it. Here's the temple, the millennial temple. Now remember, there'll be another temple built prior to the mid-trib. They could start it today. But it has to be ready by the mid-trib for the abomination of desolation. It has to be ready by the mid-trib for the Antichrist to defile it. And that temple will be destroyed. Then they'll build a millennial temple. And here it is. And the prophet sees Jesus teaching in this temple. And it says many are flowing into it. Now this is fascinating to me. To think of Jesus teaching. Now when we're raptured, we're changed. We have the mind of Christ. We have new bodies. We don't have the capacity to sin anymore. Thank God I'm be happy to get rid of this whole body. And we'll be with Jesus, and when we come back, we'll be like Him, and we'll help Him rule and reign, but we'll still go into the temple and learn. Now, how can we learn when we're already so much like Him? That's fascinating to me. But did you know Jesus increased in knowledge on a regular basis, the Bible says? He increased in knowledge daily, so certainly He's going to teach us more. Uh, You know, when I was a teenager, I knew it all. Yeah, I realized as I got older, I didn't know very much. But at that time, I may think I'll know it all because I have the mind of Christ, but I'm going to go into that temple. It says many will flow into it and learn. There's a lot of questions about this kingdom. It's going to be here on the earth for a thousand years. A lot of people have questions about the kingdom. Great questions. How big is this kingdom? There's different opinions. Now, of course, being God, he can do what he wants, set up his kingdom any way he wants, and rule the whole world, every individual, because he's God. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He's the son of man. Some believe the kingdom, which is going to be governed out of the holy city, Mount Zion, where he will sit on the throne and rule, will be the full boundaries of what the Holy Land should have been when God said, it's all yours from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River uh, to the uh, the other river out there, uh, not the Euphrates, but Tigris, and down to the river of Egypt and up into the hills of Lebanon. It's all yours, and that's how big the kingdom will be. We'll come back and help rule and reign in that kingdom. I don't know. I've always thought it's going to be a worldwide kingdom, but I do know this. While we aren't sure, I know this. In the end, all the nations of the world, remember, Let's back up. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, what does he do with the devil? He binds him up and throws him for a thousand years into hell. And then in the end, he releases him. 
He releases the devil, and he goes out and deceives all the nations of the world to come and attack Israel again and attack Jesus Christ and that throne. They hate him. They hate his rule, and they hate everything about it, and he defeats them. But here this thousand years, can you imagine? Going into the temple and hearing the Lord. That's got to be something. But we know that, that, that first before, before the end of time, the gospel has to be preached. Repentance and remission of sins must be preached. It must be preached. And that's our responsibility. Uh, I, I love Luke 1.33. It says uh, this is going to be a kingdom without end. Well, Pastor, you said it's a thousand years. It is a thousand years on this earth, but it'll go on and on and on. Because after the great white throne judgment, a new heaven and a new earth come down. And forever and ever and ever will be with the Lord. And I just imagine seeing him for the first time. And I imagine the excitement and the joy of seeing my Lord for the first time. We'll be there for eternity. That same excitement will never go away. You know, we understand excitement in our terms. When our ball team wins a great game, we're excited. It's not the same. And we understand Christmas, the child, is so exciting. You know, my grandkids, four of them, are going to come my way, and, and I, I've got to get my house ready for them, and it's going to be exciting to see them. My grandson will try to look inside the packages because he can't handle the excitement. And I did the same thing. I learned to unpack and pack back up and untape. But, you know, Mom and Dad kind of knew, didn't they? I remember one time I got a new pellet gun, and my dad stuck it behind the piano. I couldn't find any gifts for me. And I was very stressed out. That was a lot of stress for a 10-year-old boy. My dad outsmarted me. I couldn't move that big piano, but he had it behind there, you know. In all those things we enjoy and we look forward to in life, nothing will compare. Nothing will compare to seeing Jesus. Just to spend a moment looking in his face. Just think about that. You talk about exciting, folks. I'm so excited right now, I just want to say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And I want to say thank you, Jesus, for saving me that I can be part of that coming kingdom. That's going to be something. Well, here he is, and he's teaching and he's instructing, and, and he doesn't say, when he came, he said, I, I'm not doing away with the law. I'm fulfilling the law, you see. And he will teach the word of God from that temple. And then his reign, beginning in verse 3, the Prince of Peace will bring in the millennium. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And the word rebuke's an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word that's translated in Isaiah 1.18. He reasoned together. So here's our Lord. He's going to these other countries and rebuking or reasoning with them and saying, you don't need weapons anymore. This kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Take your weapons and make farm instruments out of them. You're not going to need them anymore. That's what he's going to do. And of course, his followers will believe him. And they'll, 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 they won't need their weapons anymore. Can you imagine living in a perfect kingdom with a perfect rule? Not having to worry about locking your doors at night. Not having to worry about make sure you have your gun with you when you're traveling in a bad area. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we just so much depend on our own abilities and forget that God's still sovereign and he's going to take care of us. But we sometimes are concerned. We won't need any of that anymore in the kingdom. The enemy will one day rally against him. He'll beat them just like that. 
And so here's the Prince of Peace. And all Jews always wanted three things. You can read your Old Testament. They always wanted a productive garden. We talked Wednesday night about a Jew and their inheritance and what it meant to them. Remember Naboth, he wouldn't sell it. He wouldn't sell out. He wouldn't let go of his parcel of land to the king of Israel who offered him probably plenty of money and a big portion of land. He would not sell out. Why? That inheritance meant so much to him. And remember, Jeremiah was told by God to buy a parcel of land in a city so that when they were released from Babylon, he'd have this parcel of land. And that, that buying that land was an example to all Jews that this is our land. You see, I love America, and I love my, well, I don't like cutting the grass, but I, I like the little property I have, but it's a lot of hills and a lot of work. But we don't love our land like the Jews love theirs. You know why? God gave it to them. And God said, one day I'm coming and set up a kingdom. Boy, I'd like a piece of that action, wouldn't you? Just a little sliver I'd like to go over there and buy. And so they loved, they loved their, they loved their land. And so they wanted a productive garden. And remember back in, uh, uh, Psalm 126, 5 and 6. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed will come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves. That's all about the farmers returning and crying because they can plant seed and have crops. Jews loved a productive garden. They loved a peaceful land and a pleasant home. And they haven't had it. They're surrounded by 35 to 40 countries that would like to just squash them. The only thing that protects them is God, and I believe God uses our country to protect them. But let me tell you something, folks. One day we're going to be raptured out, and nobody's going to protect the Jews in this country. You take the believers and Christians out of here, who's going to stand for Israel? Nobody. Nobody. They'll be persecuted and picked on. But look at verse verse 4. I like what Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. This right now is the devil's world. Did you know? He's a prince in power of the air. While God's sovereign, he allows for Satan to go to and fro and do his dirty work. I wish God had just stopped him one day. Well, thousand-year prison sentence is pretty long. And then later, eternity for Satan. But God allows for the free will of the fallen angels and the free will of sinful men. He allows for it. Sometimes I don't understand it, and sometimes I'm frustrated with it. But then I have to get a hold of myself and say, wake up, wake up, Danny boy. God's in control. Quit worrying about things. That's how we can make a practical application. But look at verse 5. Verse 4 mentions a fig tree. That's a type of security and prosperity. Verse 5, and this is interesting in Hebrew. This is imperative. What, what we mean by that, this is demanded of us. Verse 5, for all the people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God. You know, people will worship idols. Right now, people love their idols. People love their false gods. But look what it says here, and this is imperative. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, what? Forever and ever. <laughs> Did you know that, that that's a commandment for us to do, but it's also going to be happening automatically because as children of God, when we come back, we'll be just like Him. And we're going to love worshiping Him forever and ever. It's not going to be like a boring church service. No, no. It's going to be exciting as we're worshiping the Lord forever and ever. It's like when your team scores a touchdown, but that's fleshly most of that. We jump up, we're excited. Hey, with Jesus, it's going to be literal joy 
and we're just going to go crazy all the time because we're with him. Can you imagine that? We really can't quite understand it. But in verse 6, a regathering in that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and I will have afflicted her, and I will have afflicted. Now, let me stop here and explain. A lot of prophecies are given in Scripture that are twofold. In other words, they apply to a present situation, and then they point out to the future. We call these messianic prophecies. That's what we have here. He's talking about Judah being invaded by Babylon. And Judah would be carried away, and they'd be invaded, they'd be taken prisoner. But he's also pointing ahead to the Lord Jesus. And we know that in 1948, Jews began to return. Jews began to return. The Bible says, and I will make, verse 7, her that halteth a remnant, meaning the, the, the crippled nation of Israel will be a remnant. And her that was cast afar off, a strong nation, the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth and forevermore. He says, I'm going to reassemble them. They're going to come back. They came from a hundred and something nations in 1948. You know what's going to happen? After the rapture, they're going to come back even more so. You see, after the rapture, when we treat Jews bad in our country, I say we, we're not here. What do you think is going to happen to those six to seven million Jews we have in America? Maybe eight million now. Well, they're going to go to Israel. And the Jews from all over the world are going to go to Israel. And Israel, all Jews are going to go there. Why? Israel at that time is going to be seen as prosperous and mighty. Right now, they're the sixth most powerful army in the world. And that's why it'll take the whole world to come after them. And of course, the whole world loses in Armageddon and the Battle of Nations. But you see, they're going to return, they're going to return, and they're going to return. It's all being fulfilled. And then this remnant, they're going to come back. And this kingdom will be greater than any kingdom ever. Nothing will measure up to it. With all the Jews that come back, they'll need more territory, and they'll get it. You know, they'll, have, they'll probably have, in the millennium, they'll have all the territory that was promised to them. Under David and Solomon, they had the greatest amount of land ever. They don't have a tenth of that now. And a little sliver of land. Iraq's in their land. Iran's in their land. Egypt has some of their land. In the peace, peace accords at Camp David, that was heralded by our liberal news as some great event because we gave Egypt, Israel gave Egypt some land for peace. But Christians and pastors realize that's a terrible thing. That land belongs to Israel. There's no such thing as a two-state solution in the Bible. God gave it to one people, the children of Abraham. And so they'll have it one day. But now we see the tribulation. And then we see the millennial in verse, millennial, excuse me, the, we see the millennium. Now we see the tribulation in verses 9 and 10. It says here in verse 9, there's not, not a king. Is there no king in the Israel has not had a king since Zedekiah. They've not had one. Zedekiah is the last one. They went into, they were scattered. They're going to have one more. One more, and that's Jesus. Oh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he'll be the next one. And look at the type of the tribulation, verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter Zion, like a woman in travail. What's the tribulation going to be like? Jews, Jews know it's coming. They call it Jacob's trouble. Here Micah's talking about the tribulation. It's going to be like a woman in labor. And you ladies can understand how painful that was. And that's what it's going to be like for Israel. The terrible tribulation. What's the point of the tribulation? To get the stiff-necked, stubborn Jews to repent. I mean, God's been reaching out to them 
for thousands of years, and finally 144,000 would be saved. But boy, God has reached out to them and reached out to them, and they still reject Jesus. One day they'll accept him. And we find here, it goes on in verse 10. says, And thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There thou shalt be delivered, and, and, and there the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of the enemies. God is going to redeem. I, I love the kinsman redeemer stories in the Bible. I love Boaz, the rich farmer, finding this little Jewish girl, you know, in his fields, picking grain, and he says, just leave her some handfuls on purpose. And he's taking care of her. And he goes to the city gates and says, are there any relatives of this lady who want to redeem her? And no one spoke up. And he said, I'll buy her back for myself a bride. And do you know that's exactly what Jesus did for me? And he did for you. He paid full price to redeem you for sin, to claim you as his bride. One person's excited about that. I don't expect you to say, praise the Lord, until I ask you to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Good. We are excited about that possible day, or it's not possible, that d d day that we're going to be delivered. And so here, like, like he, he redeems them. Then the major battle in verses 11 to 13. Now also many nations are gathered against thee. Now he's backing up, remember. This is the battle called the Battle of Armageddon. The nations all get together and rally against Israel, and he steps in and he defeats them. He defeats them. And, and this, the siege of Babylon's predicted 150 years prior, and the, and the Battle of Armageddon is preached, is, is preached and prophesied 2,000 plus years. At least 2,700 years. I hope it's, I hope it's seven years from now. Wouldn't you like the Battle of Armageddon to be on the counter for seven years? Then today we'd be raptured out. Wouldn't that be great? But that battle's going to come. And then he backs up even further into chapter 5, verse 1. He says here, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us, this is Babylon, against Judah. But then there's a colon there. And the next verse and a half, he backs up even further. Remember, he's looking backwards across the millennium and the tribulation. Now he's looking at Jesus. Look at the verse. And they shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. Then he backs up from the crucifixion back to his birth. Verse 2, but thou Bethlehem afraid to, though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth a ruder who shall be from everlasting. That's the birthplace that prophets knew to tell Herod where he'd be born. So here's Jesus, born in Bethlehem, smitten, crucified, for our sins. We think of him as a lamb a lot of times. We think of him as a lamb during the Easter Passion Week and how he was slaughtered as a lamb. And we think of all he went through and how they ripped his beard. Isaiah 56 said they ripped his beard out and how they drove a spear through his side and nails through his hands and feet and they beat him where he wasn't even recognized. He was marred beyond recognition. Shed every drop of blood for you and me. I believe in the blood. By the blood I'm redeemed. And there he is beaten and tortured and treated like that as a lamb. And he's slaughtered, smitten and broken as we learn in our Passover demonstration. He's crushed. The Bible said he was crushed. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. And yet, 
He's going to, he rolls out of the grave, thank God. And one day he's going to come back. And he's not coming back as a lamb the next time. He's coming back as a lion. He's going to take control of this wicked world. He's going to set things in order. And we're going to rejoice forever and ever and ever to be part of that kingdom. Boy, that's going to be something. But there's some sad news. The sad news is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to be on the wrong side of everything. You'll be left behind to go through the tribulation period. You'll be forced to take a microchip and numbering all the people of the world in your forehead if you don't have hands. If you have hands, it'll go on the back of your hand. The two places with the least fat are your hand and your forehead. And you'll have to have that microchip to buy your groceries, to get it to go come from your bank account. You'll be under strict government control. Tonight we're going to talk about the Rock of Ages. We're going to talk about globalism and, and all these things that are upon us right now. And you, you'll be forced to take that. And if you don't take it, you're going to be beheaded and go straight to hell. If you take it, you'll get groceries for that short time. But once you take it, your fate is sealed. In fact, if you already had an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ, your fate's already sealed if the rapture takes place. Don't play the part of a hypocrite, a play actor. Don't pretend to be a Christian and pretend to be born again. I don't know anyone here that doesn't say they trusted Jesus, but I don't know your heart. God does know your heart. And if you're not born again, you're on the bad side of everything. You'll stand before him at the great white throne judgment and be cast into eternal lake of fire forever and ever and ever. You'll be here in the tribulation period. And you'll be living a life of fear, a life of hunger. I mean, you talk about... Uh, the 21 judgments and, and revelation and what's going to happen here, it's all going to happen. Hailstones, the size of Volkswagens coming down from the sky as God just shakes this world up. Darkness, sun scorching men, the ozone layer is going to bust. And the rivers are going to be polluted and they're already getting that way and the oceans are going to be polluted. They're going to turn red like blood because of the pollution Maybe it's even going to be the blood of people who were killed during all the battles. But just think of all those things. What do you have to look forward to if you don't have Jesus? You can get your new car. That excitement will last just a little bit of time. I'm a cheapskate. I bought a sport jacket online for $19 this week. Boy, that was exciting. 19 bucks. Free shipping. You know? Couldn't wait to see it. And it just wasn't as exciting as I thought it was. You know, you buy something online, you know, maybe it's not quite the quality. But we think, oh, it's going to be so good to get this new house. And it's going to be so good to get this new car. And a few years later, we don't like that car anymore. Want to get rid of it. And all we have to look forward to in this world are these things. And those things are going to be left behind. What shall it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Lose your own soul. What, what's it going to profit you? You have nothing to look forward to outside of 70 to 80, if you're really fortunate, 90 years down here. That's it. That's it. If you don't have Jesus. But today, if you want to receive Jesus, we'll have someone take the Bible and show you how to be saved. You want to see Jesus, just come forward today and say, I'm lost. I need the Lord. 
Until you get to the place where you admit that you're a sinner. You can't be saved without admitting you're a sinner. Did you know that? If you don't think you're a sinner, you can't be saved. Until you realize what you really are, then you can trust Jesus in salvation. Let's pray. Every eye closed, every head bowed. God, we thank you for Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. The fact that he did come, he was crucified. He was born in Bethlehem, crucified. And, and, and then we're waiting, Lord, for that, that rapture. And we know the tribulation, the kingdom to come. We're waiting with anticipation. But Lord, for those who don't know you in a personal way, I pray, Father, that you'll speak to their hearts. The Holy Spirit will convict them and save them as they accept Jesus as the only Savior. Bless now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.